0: Matthew 6:19 through 34, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where three thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves in treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves don't break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. So if the light within you is darkness, how deep is that darkness? No one can serve two masters, since you'll either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Consider the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? Can any of you add one moment to his lifespan by worrying? And why do you worry about clothes? Observe how the wild flowers of the field grow. They don't labor or spin. Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how, the, how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, won't he do much more for, for, for you, you of little faith? So do not worry, saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? For the Gentiles eagerly seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these things will be provided for you. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, because tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Moving into Luke twelve thirteen, Someone from the crowd said to him, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Friend, he said to him, who appointed me judge or arbiter of, over you? He then told them, watch out and be on guard against all greed, because one's life is not in the abundance of his possessions. Then he told them a parable. A rich man's land was very productive. He thought to himself, what should I do since I don't have anywhere to store my crops? I will do this, he said. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones and store all my grain and all my goods there. Then I'll say to myself, you have many goods stored up for many years. Take it easy, drink, and enjoy yourself. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life is demanded of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? That is how it is with the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Then he said to his disciples, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or the body, what you will wear, dot, dot, dot. And then the same section I read in Matthew 6, almost verbatim, we'll skip that because I just read it, Verse 31, but seek first his kingdom and these things will be provided for you. Do not be afraid little flock because your father delights to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Make money bags for yourself that won't grow old and inexhaustible treasure in heaven where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is there, your heart will be also. So lots of good um, scripture on money and I didn't want to preach on this, but Jeff said, you know what, Ties are down and you need to get up there and preach on money because I don't want to do it. And I said, all right, fine, I'll do that. I'm just kidding. So a little bit about me. I am an investor for a living. I work for a company that invests in, in multifamily real estate, private equity, and I'm constantly thinking through what's the best investment, not only in real estate, but in general, capital flows, all different public equities, alternative investments, and we're, we're constantly thinking through this. And so naturally I'm thinking about what does God have to say about money? It's been something that's been on my heart for a while and just looking at the scripture, looking at what Jesus says. So the question I wanna to ask today is, what is the difference Jesus makes in our lives when it comes to money? So the context of Matthew six is the Sermon on the Mount Jesus is preaching to a crowd um, on instructions for living as a kingdom citizen, which, side note, Matthew Kim will be preaching on in a a couple months. And in Luke 12, he's also teaching in the context of a crowd and possibly more intimately to uh, his disciples. So what we'll see, what we'll go through, is that Jesus describes two perspectives on money. One where we serve money, and the other where we serve Jesus and there's no middle ground. So the big picture that I think Jesus is getting to with these two texts is when money takes the place of God, it leads to greed, the accumulation of possessions, seeking a a life of ease, and it leads to anxiety. But when we trust in God and his promises, it leads to peace, hope in the kingdom, and sacrificial giving. You know, technology error. And yeah. Okay. Theme number one, you cannot serve God and money. Matthew 6, 24. No one can serve two masters since you'll either Hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus here is pitting trust against money with trust against God, and he makes a very strong contrast. Love, hate, be devoted to, despise. There's no middle ground. And I wanted to know, why does Jesus talk about money in such strong terms? Why does money get elevated this way? And I think a key component is that money, perhaps more than anything else, can provide the pleasure, glory, or greatness, and sense of security that um, our hearts desire. And these desires are fundamentally human, and the Bible doesn't actually put those desires down. Rather, they direct those desires to Jesus. So Jesus is the truest and best source of our happiness, our pleasure, our joy. David declares in Psalm 73, who do I have in heaven but you? And there's nothing else I desire on earth but you. And he declares God is his portion forever. And one thing that we neglect to realize, and I might err in getting astray from this, is that relationships are the number one source of our joy. This is the cheat code that we get from people on their deathbed that we all universally believe, yet we universally don't live out, and that's that relationships are most important, and Jesus is the chief of those. Jesus is the best and greatest source of our glory, the glory and greatness we seek. In Romans 12, we read, We are children of God, and if children also heirs, heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ, indeed if we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. And in Matthew 18, 1 through 5, the disciples asked Jesus, who is the greatest in the kingdom? And he goes on to say, whoever, whoever humbles himself like this child is the one that's greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So we all have this desire for glory or greatness to in, uh, within us to one extent or another. We all want to be recognized, to feel accomplished, to feel special, to be well thought of. And note that Jesus doesn't put down that desire in his disciples for greatness. He doesn't say, just don't think about that. It doesn't discourage that. He says, he points it to the kingdom. And lastly, as a component, Jesus is the best and truest source of the security we crave. In Romans 8, 38 through 39, reads, For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything other created thing will be able to separate us from the love that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So, the reality is, we often struggle with anxieties that we are going to lose something important to us, and the Bible declares that our desires are fulfilled in Christ and that we are eternally secure in our faith in Jesus and his atoning work on the cross. So, these just are a few of the things that God promises us in Him. So, how does that, what does that have to do with money? I think what Jesus is getting at is money can short circuit the need for God in these very fundamental human things. Money can buy you pleasure, houses, vacations, other experiences. Money or the pursuit of it can lead to greatness and glory, whether it's the money itself. Or if the money is a byproduct, the reality is becoming wealthy through business, entertainment, or other sources brings fame and glory. When we pursue money, or we pursue the pursuit of money, some of us will be able to achieve meaningful glory in this life. And money can produce security. Money is often seen as security. When we have it, our hearts tell us we can get shelter, food, clothing, and we can have a pleasurable life, and we rely on money because of its tangible ability to provide. So I think these fundamental areas of the human heart, which God promises us to be fulfilled in him in this life or more fully in the next, are to be found in him, and money can be in competition for that. So Jesus declares, trust money, serve money, or trust me, serve me. And one final illustration on this point, the rich young ruler from Matthew 19. So he comes, so there's a man, a wealthy young man who comes to Jesus saying, look at all the things I've done. I've been faithful. I've served you. What else do I need to do, Jesus? And Jesus says, go sell all your possessions to the poor and give, um, and you will have treasure in heaven and then come follow me. And the Bible records the young man went away grieving because he had many possessions. Then he goes on to say Jesus to the disciples, truly I tell you it'll be hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again I tell you it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. I think what Jesus is illustrating here is that if we have everything we need in money, why do we need him? And if we have this great wealth and we have this kingdom on earth, glory, pleasure, security, and we're so fond of it, are we willing to give it up for Jesus? So this is the condition of our hearts. Money is visible, tangible, and immediate. Whereas Jesus is invisible, his present always isn't tangible, and the fullness of our pleasure, glory, and greatness is not immediate. Our greatest hope is in the kingdom to come, and our greatest home is with Jesus when we meet him face to face. So the question remains, God or money? All right, and we're going to, we'll keep developing this. Theme number two, life is not the abundance of possessions. Be on guard against greed, and seeking a life of ease. So I want to read this again from Luke 12. Jesus tells a a parable. Right after he says, watch out and be a guard against all greed, because one's life is not in the abundance of possessions. He told them the parable, a rich man's land was very productive, and he thought to himself, what should I do since I have, I don't have anywhere to store my crops. I will do this, he said. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones and store all my grains and all my goods there. Then I will say to myself, you have stored up many goods for many years. Take it easy. Eat, drink, enjoy yourself. But God said to him, you fool. This very night your life is demanded of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? That is, that is how it will be with the one who stores up his treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So and emphasis added there with my tone of voice, but wow, isn't that harsh? Jesus illustrates what a life too preoccupied with money looks like and his perspective on it. And the the man in the parable, he was wealthy. He had a productive productive farm. He doesn't seem too unreasonable from our standards. He had a successful business. He saved up and achieved his goal of living a life of ease. Isn't that what we all want on some level? But God declares that foolishness. And the ESV translation translates the consequence like this. This very night, your soul is required of you. God does not take money and what we do with it lightly. So this is a man who has served, who's spent his life worshiping money. He's oriented himself around money and the comfort and ease it affords. And so why is he foolish? What's foolish about what he's doing? And how do we make sure we're not following, falling into the same trap? I want to read these words again. The man says to himself, you have many goods stored up for many years. Take it easy, drink, and enjoy yourself. Isn't this the very goal of the American dream? Isn't that exactly what our cultural idea of retirement is? And how much as Christians are we bought into this idea? The desire for cars, houses, vacations. Our culture is saturated with materialism. In Romans 12, Paul declares, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. Jesus says, be on guard against greed. And this is an active, intentional process of discernment. So where's the line? How do you define what marks a life of greed? I think this is all going to come down to a matter of your own heart. And we're going to talk about that But I want to give just a couple practical examples that have been on my mind as I think through this for my own life and for us. And I think one thing that we should consider when we think about abundance is how the degree in which our standard of living has increased over the last 2,000 years, even among the poor in the US. And so that compared to the audience Jesus was speaking to, we probably all look extremely wealthy in terms of our daily comforts. And so what happens is that your expectation of what you need and what you want is normal and reasonable and it'll never stop growing. Once you've been at one level, there will always be that next incremental step and then the next. Or maybe you were born into a family with comfortable economic means, that's just gonna be normal and reasonable for you. And I want to just illustrate this. So Elizabeth and I, we um, lived in a couple small apartments before uh, we ended up getting um, our house here in Edmonds six years ago. And when we got this house that we're in now, we, our minds were just blown. We thought we had so much space. It was like a forever of forever homes. We were just full of joy and so happy. And, and then uh, just, I think, a couple weeks ago, I'm sitting... I'm sitting there, and I'm just, this house is feeling a little small. It sure needs a lot of work. Maybe, wouldn't it be nice just to buy a bigger house? It doesn't need so much work. And so here we go. Just in six years, and our need for space hasn't changed. Nothing practically has changed about our needs. What was once a delight is now not good enough. And this phenomenon, actually, there's a term for it. Lifestyle creep. Investopedia defines lifestyle creep as occurring when an individual's standard of living improves as their discretionary income rises and former luxuries become new necessities. So this is just a, um, a psychological reality that I, should, I think we should be aware of as we consider our, our uh, lifestyle. Okay, and another practical thing that I've personally had to work through is um, how we feel about our financial position is often determined by those around us, those above us, those below us, and so we might be tempted to look at others who have a more luxurious lifestyle, and relative to them, we might feel like, oh, we're, we're reasonable, we're good, but what we probably don't recognize is that there's someone below your economic circumstances thinking the same thing about you, so we're kind of like our culture is very, um, in the moment of calling out the likes of Bezos and Musk, and everyone's really upset that these ultra-billionaires have these life of excess, and yeah, I agree they're probably living lives of excess, but I would just ask myself and you, how do you think that somebody who lives in a house the size of your walk-in closet with a dirt floor sees your life? It's probably similar. And there are almost a billion people on the planet Earth who live on less than $2 a day. So around fifty thousand dollars gets you into the top one percent of worldwide income world, uh, world um, income earners. So, as I stand up here today, I've learned that I can't judge anyone, and this point is is very true for me because I grew up with you know not a, a high level of economic means. My my mom was a house cleaner raising my brother and I um, on minimum wage and we had all the things that you would have kind of in a a, a poor upbringing. Most of my clothes were were hand-me-downs from my uh, older cousin. And I remember when I got to college, I learned about these things called designer jeans. And I thought it was absolutely ridiculous that somebody would spend over $100 on a pair of jeans. You know what I bought at Nordstrom Rec a couple months ago? A pair of designer jeans. But I still have the tags on and I might take them back after this sermon. (laughs) So Jason, 10 years ago, would absolutely judge the Jason today for his lifestyle. And so what I've realized is that I'm I'm no different. If I was a billionaire, the reality is I would have a billionaire's lifestyle. I'm not living here below my means. I'm living within my means and so this is for me. So I think everyone just needs to look at their own life, their own choices and be proactive. Theme number three, trust in God's provision is a cure for our anxiety. So Matthew 6, 25 through 32, I won't read this again, but right after, there's two components where Jesus brings this language of do not worry about your life, do not worry about your clothing, do not worry about your, your, um, your house, where you'll, you know, where you'll live, what you'll... God is going to provide. And what's interesting, and, and one of the reasons I couldn't decide between just one of these passages, is that they're both, they, one, in one instance, this do not worry is right after Jesus declares, you cannot serve God and money. And the other, in Luke 12, it's right after the parable of the rich fool. In both cases, He says, therefore, do not worry. He's tying our economic perspectives to to worry. And the reality is that Jesus is calling us to trust in God. And when we trust in God, we have relief and peace. And so, trust in Jesus is really the anecdote to our uh, money-sick, worrying hearts. But, you know, we've heard this, we've probably seen these verses, and I wanted to really look think more deeply about the anatomy of our anxiety. And Jesus in this in these verses focuses on two things, clothing and food, two necessities needed for survival, but also two things that can be a status symbol or bring us joy. And so as I was thinking about it, you know, what makes what makes up anxiety and one one clue that I've come to realize is that If we ask ourselves in a a state of anxiety, what are we afraid of losing or what are we afraid of not obtaining can sometimes be the answer for why we're anxious. And so, you know, the historical perspective here as Jesus is communicating to this audience, I don't know exactly the heart of the audience at that time in the first century, but more than likely that audience, you know, as artisans, as uh, farmers, as fishermen, as a more rural place. They were, they were more often than not probably familiar with, if the fish aren't biting or if there's a drought, I'm going to go hungry and I won't have clothes. And so it's possible that they were actually afraid for their life more frequently than we probably are. I'm not sure about that. And, but maybe they were worried about pleasure and status and they wanted to keep up with the Joneses and they were afraid of not being able to do that. So wherever wherever this place of anxiety is coming from, we can trust Jesus with our lives, and he has great things planned for us. So in terms of money, what are we afraid of losing, or what are we afraid of not obtaining? And what's Jesus' answer to those fears? So far, we've covered of our big picture idea. When money takes the place of God, it leads to seeking a life of ease, greed, and anxiety, because remember, if you're trusting in money, then what if money goes away? What if it's not there? What if you have to go backwards in your lifestyle? If you're trusting in God, as we'll get to, if we trust in his provision, we have peace, but what what next what we'll talk about is, is the hope and sacrificial giving that that leads to. So theme four, Store up wealth in heaven, a call to a kingdom perspective and sacrificial giving. Luke 12, 31 through 34, I'll read it again. But seek first his kingdom and these things will be provided for you. Don't be afraid, little flock, because your father delights to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Make money bags for yourselves that won't grow old an inexhaustible treasure in heaven where no thief comes near, and no moth destroys, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. So here, uh, and this is a very similar part of, you know, very similar language in Matthew 6 as well that we read, and these are pointing to, I think, absolutely critical truths that are so important for us to absorb in order to allow Jesus to actually make a difference in our lives as it comes to money. And so here, I think we have both the hardest part of Jesus' message on money and the most encouraging part. So let's start with with the latter. What's what's most encouraging? In Luke 12, 31, seek first his kingdom and these things will be provided for you. Do not be afraid because your father delights to give you the kingdom. And Matthew says, store up treasures in heaven. And here's, here's the reality. You and I... In Jesus, we are wealthy beyond our wildest dreams. We are famous and glorious, but not yet. At least some of us, not yet. But we will all be in the life to come because you were adopted as sons and daughters and your heirs. And so I think about the places where royalty exists still, like you know, how uh, the royal weddings of, of England and just the whole world gets into a giant tizzy I mean, these, this is a, a regal kind of experience that the Bible connects us to as prince and princesses with Jesus. G, um, Paul illustrates in 1 Corinthians 2.9, he says, no eye has seen nor ear heard and no human heart conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. And so the Father delights to give us the kingdom and our minds can't even fathom how good it will be. And so, I just want to pause and clarify before I go any further that the Bible teaches that by our faith alone in Christ, we are forgiven, justified, and brought into the kingdom. So, we have a seat at Jesus's table no matter what we do if we have faith because Jesus's blood has bought that seat. So, It's really important not to interpret this as something you do to earn God's favor. However, the Bible does teach that there are rewards and that we can actually build wealth in the kingdom by what we do today in response to what Jesus has done. So Jesus says, lay up for yourself treasures in heaven And and then another area that I think is really fascinating, Matthew 19, 28 through 30, Jesus says something similar. He says, anyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or children or fields because of my name will receive a hundred times more and will inherit eternal life. But the many who will be first will be last and the last will be first. So, he, here Jesus is broadening sacrifice to not just money, but everything we love and hold dear, whether it's even, even family. But fields, that's a business. To give up field is to give up a business and an economic source. And what, is, um, what does Jesus say you will get in return? One hundredfold. That has to mean something tangible. I don't know how else it can be interpreted other than... Jesus says if you give something up, you will get 100-fold that in the life to come. And as an investor, I think about a 100x return is actually off the charts. To go from 1 to 2 is a, is a 100% increase. To go from 1 to 100 is a 10,000% increase. Let me know if you have an investment that's better than that. So, you know, if I ever had the chance to, to buy a 30-foot yacht and I give it up to give it to the poor... I'm expecting a 3,000-foot yacht in heaven. If I ever give a a 5,000-square-foot view home, I'm expecting a 500,000-square-foot view home in heaven. Otherwise, I'm going to have something to say to Jesus about that. So I'm joking about that. Um, But the kingdom has pleasures beyond what we can even imagine. Houses, boats, vacations, they're not not even what we have. There's going to be something so much better that we can't even wrap our minds around. And here's the other thing. It's important to realize that giving is a matter of each person's heart, and each person's individual circumstances. It's not just for the wealthy. It's it's for everybody and wherever they are in their circumstances, this is something for you to do as worship with what you have. And here's another fun thing. I was thinking about, you know that study where they... um, They test kids' attention span and patience, and they're trying to test something, and they say, hey, you can have one marshmallow now, or if you wait uh, 10 minutes, you can have two marshmallows. And so I feel like what Jesus is basically saying here is, give up something in this short life, and then in the next, you'll have far more than you can imagine. It's essentially the uh, Christian version of the marshmallow test. So I think that um, sacrificial giving is very challenging to us. So I would say, why not allow for some level of this motivation? I think it's as an investor, it's motivating to me. We all have this concept of saving. The Bible, these are Jesus' words. I think we should, we should look at them. What does laying up treasure in heaven mean? And I think what this is coming down to is sacrificial giving. But seek first his kingdom. And then Jesus says, a little bit later, sell your possessions and give to the poor. He says, sell your possessions and give to the poor. So is Jesus literally asking the disciples or the audience to sell everything that they have and give to the poor? Probably not, maybe. But at the very least, we can interpret this as a, this hyperbolic language as a strong call to sacrificial giving. And remember, anybody who's given up these things is going to get them back. And sacrificial living is more than just money. It's time, energy, gifts, all of that. But I think this is the process by which you store up treasures in heaven. And at this point, I've really only argued that the most selfish thing you can do is give up your life and money because it's just an act of delayed hedonism. It's just a 100x return on my investment that I'm going to cash in in the next life. So I haven't even asked us to do anything difficult. It's just save up for the next life. But we also have to remember that that money does tangible good. And it's a way for us to love people and glorify God. I think this is really the greatest purpose of our giving is to help those in need and to reflect God's love and generosity. So just, I want to emphasize this because money, it can feed people who are hungry tonight. It can clothe people who are cold tonight. It can rescue children who are enslaved today. It can send missionaries to unreached people who are lost today. It's a really powerful tool. According to the World Bank, as I mentioned, there's nearly a billion people on earth suffering from extreme poverty. It's estimated that between 10 and 40 million children are in modern day slavery. So there's no shortage of opportunities to give and no shortage of dire need. So who's the poor? It might be your neighbor. It might be somebody nearby, but it's also this earth. There's so much poverty on earth that we can use our money to give up, to benefit. And we can demonstrate the generosity of God by giving. We can do so much. There your heart will be. Jesus says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. How we spend our time and our money and energy demonstrates what we love. If we spend it on ourselves, we demonstrate we love ourselves. If we spend it on others, our time, energy, our finances, our treasure, whatever we hold most dear, whatever we treasure, where that is, is where our heart is. And if that is with people that that Jesus loves, the marginalized, the lost, the needy, if our time, our energy, and our money is with those people, it demonstrates we love them and it demonstrates that we love God. So I would say, I want us to go all in. In 1 Corinthians 15, 18 through 19, Paul says that if we have our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone else. Now, I'm not sure about the exact context there in 1 Corinthians, but I think the same general concept would apply. If we live lives of sacrificial giving, the world might pity us. Why are you spending your money helping other people? Why are you spending all your time on other people? What about you? You are wasting your only life. Perhaps our lives should look so different that people would ask that question. But we can only get there if we truly believe what Jesus is saying. We can only get there if we have faith that Jesus will make good on his promises. We can only get there if we believe that this life on earth is not all that there is. So when it comes to demonstrating faith with money, what holds us back is our trust in money, our greed, our desires for the comforts, and ease in this life, our unbelief that Jesus' promises are true and that there will be a lot waiting for us. So let us cast our fears and doubts to Jesus and look to him for strength. All right, it's pretty much close to over. (laughs) So to summarize what we've covered, you cannot serve God and money. Life is not the abundance of possessions. Be on guard against all greed. Trust in God's provision and be cured of our anxiety. Store up wealth in heaven, a call to a kingdom perspective and sacrificial giving. Again, when God takes the place, when money takes the place of God, it will lead us to seek a life of ease, greed, And we'll be anxious when we don't get it or when we're afraid of losing it. And when we trust in God's provision, it leads to peace, hope, and a life of sacrificial giving in response. And I think this is the difference Jesus wants to make in our lives. Final note, in Matthew 6 and Luke 12, Jesus was giving instructions on godly living. And at the time, most of the world did not yet know that he would actually practice what he would preach in the most profound way. 2 Corinthians 8, 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, for your sake became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. Though he was rich, for your sake became poor, that by his poverty we might become rich. So let's close by recognizing these things. One, Jesus sacrificed everything for us. He Never married. He never had a house. He lived a life, most of his adult life, as an itinerant preacher. He gave up his own life on a cross for us. He died in our place for our sins. He died for our lack of faith. He died for our trust in money. And it's only by trusting in Jesus, trusting in the power of the Holy Spirit that we can live the life Jesus calls us to.